when a guard would stop and talk to you, you used to stand back and you would yell so people could hear what you were saying to that guard as they walked by or, or within the vicinity. But he knew what a convict was going to do before they thought of it themselves. He'd just been around that long and uh, he was tough. They'd find uh, Sparky in about every conceivable place you could imagine, which we would, of course, dump. They'd wait until everybody was locked up and he would open his door, run down to cell one and get a bugler can full of Sparky and take it back to his cells. She had a kind of a hypnotic power. There were a great many wild cats around the penitentiary, and most people couldn't get near them. But she would stand in the doorway of the cell house and say, Kitty, 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 and those cats would go to her. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, back to Stool Pigeon Saturday. Today we have actually a repeat guest, John Dinger, the deputy prosecuting attorney for Ada County in Boise, Idaho, where he supervises the Child Abuse and Sexual Assault Unit. And John was on at the end of Season 3. If you haven't listened to it, go check it out. It's on Unlawful Cohabitation. Fantastic. He is a graduate of the S.J. Quinney College of Law at the University of Utah, and he was an editor of the Utah Law Review there, and he also holds degrees in political science and history from the University of Utah. And he's published in several journals for his research and writing, and today he has a fantastic explanation of the court process, especially during the territorial days. And I think it'll help all of our listeners who maybe don't know the whole process of, you know, what happens after you commit the crime and you get caught. What's the process that results in you coming to the penitentiary? So John is going to share that with us. So welcome, John. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. Absolutely. So you guys know that I love Idaho history Mm -hmm. and I love legal history. And uh, both of these topic, topics often lead us right back to the old penitentiary. Um, I also love the old penitentiary, one of my favorite places to go. But people and criminals didn't always end up at the pen. Sometimes they were acquitted. Sometimes they did local jail. And sometimes it was worse. Sometimes they would, uh, uh, well, they would get the death penalty. So what I wanted to do was take a term of the court back from Idaho history and talk about what it looked like and show how central it was to life back in the territorial days. And so one of my favorite episodes that you've done uh, coincides with the period that I'm working on. And so I picked one during that time period. And the episode that I love, and and I love all of them, but uh, this one I really like was the one on uh, Hinaba. And so if you don't remember who Hinaba was, or if you've picked up this podcast late, you should pause this and go back to listen to episode five. But just in case you're too lazy to do that, Sky or Anthony, could you kind of give us a quick refresher on Hinaba? Yeah, so Hennaba, uh, or Hennaby, sometimes we call her, it's kind of spelled alternately. She was a, a Native American woman, the first woman actually in the prison. And in about 1886, she was in for what the newspaper called meme loosing, M-E-M-E. It may have been like, mem- I don't know how they say it. We just say, I say meme because that's how we know that word now. But basically for killing her husband. And then while she was here, she was just kept in the same jail with all the men because they didn't have a women's section yet. And she uh, escaped and walked all the way back to the Blackfoot Reservation and was caught there by uh, Indian police and returned. And that's really the most that we know about her. We haven't been able to find anything else, um, but it sounds like you might have found some other things about her. 
Oh, I don't, I don't know that I'd do any better than you guys. Um, for example, I can't pronounce your name right. <laughs> no, it's, it's either way. There's yeah. no, I mean, that's, we only have newspapers. No one ever said her name out loud. So that's no worries. Yeah. Well, so she was prosecuted in the May 1887 term of the court held at Bingham County. And so that's the term of the court that I wanted to talk about today, just to kind of give a snapshot of the legal system in territorial Idaho. And there was a lot of drama at this term. There were three murder prosecutions uh, and civil work uh, that went on and, and, and much, much more. And so the May 1887 uh, term of court was held at the old Bingham County Courthouse. And it was a pretty new building. It had been built in 1885. And Bingham was part of the third judicial district back at the time. And so back then there were three districts and each one had a district judge. And then these three district judges made up the Supreme Court, which seems a little bit odd, because if you're going to appeal what the district court judge does, he's one of the judges that hears that appeal. So you'd think he'd probably uphold what he did as correct. But the judge of the third judicial district, his name was James B. Hayes. He would travel around all year holding court in many different places. Uh, They would hold court in Bear Lake in March and July, Bingham County in May and November, Oneida in June and October, as well as Haley, Chalice, Salmon City, and in Cache County. And so traveling wasn't easy back then, especially to Haley. It was always a combination of train, stagecoach, and horseback riding. That's where you actually get the term circuit, as you'd kind of go on this this circuit. And it was the same back in in Idaho. I've never, I never realized that. That's really interesting. Huh. Yeah, they, they ride the circuit. That's where we get these. That's where we get that. And so this, this district, the third judicial district, it was the Mormon district. And that brought certain challenges with it. And so during this time was the raid, which is known as just sort of the organized prosecution of polygamists. And so back then, the Latter-day Saints basically voted as a block and were generally all Democrats. And I know that sounds backwards. As today, uh, most are generally Republican. But in the 1880s, they were Democrats. And in, a few weeks ago, I found a funny article in the Rexburg Press from 1893. Uh, the title of this article was, How is it possible for a Mormon to be a Republican? So how things have changed. Uh, but anyway, James B. Hayes, he'd been appointed the year previous, and, and it was under a lot of drama. So kind of setting the stage for, for this crazy term. The prior judge was this guy named John T. Morgan, and he'd been removed because the Mormons in the third judicial district pushed for his removal. So he'd been a judge in Idaho, Morgan, since 1879, and he was a Republican. And in 1885, there was a Democratic president, Grover Cleveland. So in 1885, Morgan made the saints very angry by doing a couple things. He upheld the Idaho test oath, something passed by the Idaho legislature in 1884, which said that Latter-day Saints couldn't vote, serve public office, serve on juries, or teach school. And so he did this by refusing Mormons to be on a jury in Cache County in 1885. And then he also sentenced polygamists to the penitentiary, which we kind of talked about on my my last time I was on here. And, you know, the saints there thought that this was just harsh and, and Uh, unreasonable. And so they complained and said that Morgan was doing all sort of shady stuff and he got removed. But whether he was doing shady stuff, I don't know if that's true. I think really he was removed because a Democratic president was in power and they like to appoint Democratic judges. So Morgan was out and Hayes was in. But what ended up, Hayes was even harsher than Morgan. So immediately upon being appointed, he found himself in Casha County where he had to, to decide like Morgan if Mormons could serve as jurors. And so there was a big legal argument and he decided the same. 
that the test oath prohibited Mormons from serving on juries. And so this must have come as a shock as he was a Democrat like they were. And, you know, you're supposed to help your buddies out. But it got worse. His next step was Bingham County, where he presided over many trials of polygamists and sentenced eight men to prison for polygamy and unlawful cohabitation. And uh, he, he was harsh. He kind of compared it to being an avalanche. He said, you are starting an avalanche. It is like an avalanche that gathers on a mountain peak very little at first, but it grows stronger and stronger and it sweeps all opposition before it. And uh, in talking about this kind of avalanche theme, he said, uh, you know, it will culminate not only in the overthrow of your entire system, but it will, if necessary, wipe you from existence. And so it was very unpopular in Bingham County with a certain set of people. But he was our judge in 1887. And the district attorney was H.M. Bennett and the sheriff was S.F. Taylor. And so court started on May 2nd, 1887 and ended on June 3rd, 1887. So there were 28 court days and they would only break on Sunday. And so court started with Judge Hayes appointing some defense attorneys. And this is kind of unusual. It makes perfect sense now today where you get appointed a public defender but this was not the case back then. But they started out by appointing attorneys for a couple of different defendants, Frank Williams, Bernard Morris, and uh, Hinneby. And so Frank Williams and Hinneby were facing murder charges. And so that's kind of interesting that, that they went and made sure that these people were represented. Uh, the other thing that the court did that day was impanel a grand jury. And so a grand jury back then and still today meet and hear cases, but they're very different from a trial jury. A grand jury isn't deciding guilt or innocence. They're deciding if there's enough evidence for the case to go forward. And so they decide if there is probable cause, not evidence beyond a reasonable doubt like a trial jury. And so when the grand jury meets, there's no judge, no defense attorney. It's just the prosecutor and the witnesses that he or she calls. And if they determine that there is enough evidence to go forward, then they indict the person. So if listeners have ever heard about a criminal defendant being indicted or an indictment, it means that a grand jury determined there was enough evidence for the case to go forward. And so in 1887, the grand jury foreman was H.O. Harkness, who later served at the Idaho Constitutional Convention. And so because Latter-day Saints weren't allowed to serve on juries, as this has been upheld at least twice, it was very difficult to fill juries in Bingham, Casha, Bear Lake, and Oneida counties. So nowadays, if you serve on a, a jury, you legally don't have to be on another jury for at least two years. But back then, and even in this term, they were on the very next jury trial. Uh, it seemed like there were roughly 16 to 20 men to pick from, and you know you had to pick 12. So, so they did a lot of work back then. But court wasn't all doom and gloom. So that's what they did on the first day. But on the second day, we saw something happy happened in court. Back in the 1880s and long after, it was the district courts that granted citizenship to immigrants in our country. So on May 3rd, 1887, Henry R. Lewis, who was a native of Canada, took an oath and was admitted to citizenship. And so as part of his oath, he swore that he has resided in Idaho for one year, that he has behaved himself and had good moral character for the last five years, that he supports the United States Constitution, and that he absolutely and entirely renounces and abjures all allegiances and fidelity to every foreign prince, potente, state, or sovereign, whatever, and particularly to Victoria, Queen of Great Britain. So quite That's one of my favorite things, that particularly to Queen yes. Victoria. <laughs> it's great. And so 
during this term of the court, four individuals were granted U.S. citizenship. And so I, you know, I thought that was pretty cool, but I'm also pretty interested in oaths given in Idaho, as I hope to, to write a book on the Idaho test oath uh, one day. And so I looked into these four men and it appeared that one of them was LDS. And so it just kind of struck me that he could become a citizen, but then he couldn't vote or serve on a jury or those kind of things. And so that kind of took me on a little mini rabbit hole. And uh, I started looking at some of the oaths through time because they became standardized through the states. And so in 1904, you had to swear an oath that I had not been convicted of a felony or crime or misdemeanor involving moral turpitude, that I was not then a polygamist, anarchist, or person who believed in or advocated the overthrow by force or violence, the government of the United States. So the polygamists were thrown in with the anarchists and the uh, violent overthrowers. And then in 1908, again, it was, you had to swear I was not a polygamist, not a believer in the practice of polygamy. It seemed like anarchists were doing a little better in 1908 than the polygamists. But then I abandoned my rabbit hole. So I only know up to 19... 39, you had to swear that you weren't a polygamist to become a citizen. But That's so interesting. I wonder if it had to do because I know that in the you know mid 1800s that the the twin uh, relics of barbarism were slavery and polygamy. So I wonder if that sort of remained sort of in in popular imaginary for a hundred years almost. Right. Yeah. Probably. Interesting. But yeah. So so happy things did happen. Um, you know, people became citizens. And I, th- I think it's good to remember that, that happy things do happen in court as well. But the next day, the grand jury got to business and they indicted four cases. And so if you remember Frank Williams, who got an attorney appointed, he was indicted in two cases, both for first degree murder. John Payne and James Bliss, they were co-defendants in a grand larceny indictment. And Jacob Hoover was indicted for assault with intent to murder. And in the following weeks, they indicted Bernard Morris for aiding prisoners to escape, Gazi Ah, or Hinnaby, for murder, James Vincent for exhibiting a deadly weapon, Alexander Woods for murder, and Ed Harrington and Columbus Nickerson for grand larceny. So some theft, a lot of violence, kind of probably what you think about when you think of the the wild, wild west. I was curious about where you accessed this information. Like, where did you find these court documents? So I'm a, I'm a big nerd. Um, and we are too. <laughs> I was digging through the Bingham County docket book. Um, so they would take notes every day and write down everything that happened in court. And so uh, a lot of this historical stuff is at the, the archives, just next door to the pen. Uh, they have fantastic stuff and a fantastic staff that'll just bend over backwards to help you. And so that, that's kind of what I do. I love to look through these old court documents. Thank you. So we're going to talk about the criminal. We'll circle back to it because, you know, this is the old pen podcast, but I want to talk about some of the civil things that happened back then as well. And, and we just talked about citizenship, but occasionally there were child custody matters, which I don't know if you always think about happening back in the day. But on May 4th, 1887, there was a case and it was titled In the Matter of the Writ of Habeas Corpus for Myrtle Giggy. And uh, I'm not great at genealogy. I probably should have asked my mom to help me out. I had a little trouble figuring out who she was, but it looks like Myrtle Giggy was an eight to 10 year old child. And the person who was trying to get custody of her was E.D. Giggy, who was either a father or an uncle. And so he sued to get her back from a Miss Davidson and a Miss Christensen. And so sadly, with most historical cases, we don't know all the details. Um, All we have is the docket book. But what we do know is a family member filed a writ of habeas corpus. And so I was listening to episode one of uh, season five, 
And Martin, he when he wrote that letter to the Arkansas pen, he was quoting this habeas corpus and, and all of that. And so habeas corpus is this really old legal proceeding going back hundreds and hundreds of years back to England to the common law. And it, it translates into bring or produce the body. And so back in the day when the king or someone would lock you, you know, in a dungeon, you'd file this habeas corpus and it would force them to bring the body or the person, the prisoner into court so that he can then plead his case and say, Hey, you know, they threw me in there. I have rights. And so this way here, the Giggies used it to make Davidson and Christensen bring the child to court. And so after a hearing, it was ordered, well, it was quote, ordered the decree be granted herein giving custody of the said child, Myrtle Giggy to E.D. Giggy. And the sheriff is hereby ordered to deliver the custody of said minor child. And so we have a family reunited by the court. And that's nothing I've ever thought about. They did back in the territorial times, but something that they do. The first big trial to go was Frank Williams, the murderer. And so Frank Williams, he was born in Rhode Island in 1861, making him about 26 when he uh, sat trial. And he came west in 1880, traveling to Wyoming, where he worked as a cowboy on the Platte River. He joined the army in Utah in 1884, but deserted. And in 1886, he fled to Idaho. And he worked on the railroad in Eagle Rock, now Idaho Falls, until he became a miner on the South Fork. And he went up on the South Fork and he found an abandoned cabin. And he planned to spend the winter there in of 86, 87. And while it was a pretty remote place, he did have some neighbors about three miles up the Creek uh, were a Charles Reed and a John Wynn. And then there was another neighbor in the area, a Mr. Glover. So on December 17th, 1886, Frank Williams went to Glover's house and asked to borrow his boat. And Williams told him he needed to float down to Eagle Rock to turn himself in. And so Mr. Glover was like, well, what do you mean yourself in? And so he explained that he had a bit of bad luck that day. And he took Glover to the cabin of Reed and Wynn. And Glover saw blood all over the place and saw that the bodies of the men were pulled under their beds and firewood was kind of stacked around the bodies to hide them. And Williams told him that he'd stopped by and was showing Reed his gun when it went off. And he said it hit him in the head and he immediately fell into a chair in a sitting position. I mean, what luck. Uh, he then said that when thinking that Williams had killed his friend, grabbed an ax and charged him. And Williams said he was able to knock him down and take the ax, but that when then went for a gun. And so he had to hit him with the ax and he died. He then told Glover that he dragged the two men under the beds and stacked the firewood around them. So people wouldn't know that they were killed. And so animals wouldn't get them. And so Glover uh, told him, you know, don't, don't leave for Eagle Rock. I assume he probably thought that he would flee. And so instead he, he had him stay and Glover wrote a letter to the sheriff and the sheriff got there on December 27th and they had Williams reenact what happened. They had a doctor examine the bodies and Williams was arrested and taken to Bingham County jail. So the trial took three days, May 9th through the 11th. And that's crazy to me. These days, murder trials take two weeks plus, you know, two weeks is a quick one. So on the 9th, the jury was picked and Mr. Glover was called as a witness and then the following day, the prosecution called four more witnesses, and the defense ended up calling five witnesses, including Williams himself. And so the prosecution's theme was to pick apart Williams' version of what happened. And so Glover described where the bloodstains were and that they didn't match. He spoke about how one body was limber and the other one was rigid. 
uh, meaning they weren't killed minutes apart. And then there were witnesses that testified how Williams tried to cover it up, like put ash on the blood, uh, things like that, that, you know, why would you need to cover up an accident? And the defense had some witnesses of that one, including the defendant, and he told his story, but he couldn't give an explanation as to why he cleaned up the scene of an accident. And so on May 11th, the jury came back into court and delivered their verdict. Quote, we, the jury sworn and impaneled in the above case, find the defendant guilty of murder in the first degree. So right around this same time in court, James Vincent, who was there for exhibiting a deadly weapon, pled guilty. John Payne pled guilty of grand larceny and the case was dismissed against his co-defendant. So he probably, you know, said it was all me, not, not my friend. And Jacob Hoover, assault with the intent to murder, he hired James Hawley as his attorney. And so that name should be familiar to anybody who likes Idaho history. You know, he was a U.S. attorney and he was later the mayor of Boise and he was the ninth governor, 1911 to 1913. And so on May 12th and 13th, two more trials were held. Hiram Cherry for theft and Jacob Hoover, who had just hired James Hawley for the assault with the deadly weapon. And so in the first case against Hiram Cherry, none of the witnesses showed up. So the court was, uh, the case was dismissed. He went free. And I got to tell you, as a prosecutor, I have that same worry every time I have a trial. Are are my people going to show up? But the case against Hoover went to trial. And so was James Hawley worth the money? He absolutely was. Hoover was acquitted. And I don't know exactly what happened in the trial, but I do know that John Morgan, the ex-judge, he was one of the witnesses for the defense. And I bring that up because later in this same term of court, John Morgan and James Hall are going to go up against each other in another murder trial to uh, heavyweights. In 2021, the Idaho State Historical Society is celebrating 140 years of service to Idahoans as the trusted source in protecting Idaho's historical places and artifacts and sharing its stories. As a part of the commemoration, the Old Idaho Penitentiary is committed to bringing you 140 unique stories about the people who worked, lived, and served time at the site through this podcast and the events and programs scheduled throughout the year. Capturing 140 Storytelling Program offers a unique glimpse at lives filled with hope and despair and the enduring triumphs and tragedies at Idaho's only penitentiary from 1872 to 1973. Stay tuned. So on May 17th was Hinneby's trial. So she went to trial, but she was convicted of a lesser charge. So the state said she was guilty of first degree murder, but the jury came back manslaughter. And so the other thing that really stuck out to me that that I really liked seeing is one of the prosecution witnesses was a Gadry I, but they gave this witness an interpreter, Mary Randall. And I tried to look into Mary Randall and see where she got her experience and couldn't find much. I did find that she was the official interpreter for Fort Hall. I know that she was born in Idaho, but the other government documents didn't say much about her. But I just think it is amazing and really cool that in the 1880s, a woman was given the job of such importance that she was the chief uh, interpreter at Fort Hall. Because, you know, women are so often, you know, erased from history. It's, it's cool to see that we have someone playing a, a major role here. Yeah, this sounds like a great research topic for any graduate students or something. Mary Randall, look into her story. That sounds really fascinating. I'd love to learn more about her. So about halfway through the term of the court on May 18th, 
we got our third murder indictment and it's for Alexander Wood. And so his attorney at first was H.W. Kentucky Smith, who he's important to me because he's the author of the Idaho Test Oath. And so the legislative session wasn't going, so he worked as an attorney and he helped defend Woods. But he also hired John Morgan on his team. And we'll talk about that trial in a little bit. But around this time, before the trial started, um, the judge sentenced some of the cases he dealt with up to this point. So on May 20th, 1887, he sentenced three defendants. So the first one was John Payne for grand larceny. And if you recall, he took responsibility and pled guilty. And here's what the judge did. He ordered, it is hereby considered and adjured that the said defendant, John Payne, be imprisoned and kept at hard labor in the territorial prison of the territory of Idaho for the term of five years. Uh, And so he became inmate number 168. And then uh, he next sentenced Robert Davis for aiding prisoners to escape. And he also pled guilty and took responsibility. And uh, here's what Judge Hayes said. It is hereby considered and adjudicated that the said defendant, Robert Davis, be imprisoned and kept at hard labor in the territorial prison of the territory of Idaho for the term of two years. And he became inmate 167. And then also John Vincent for exhibiting a deadly weapon. He also pled guilty and his sentence was a bit different. It is hereby considered and adjudged that the said defendant, John Vincent, be imprisoned in the common jail of Bingham County for the term of 10 days. So Anthony and Sky, this is one guy you didn't get. He didn't come your way. And I, I looked him up and he is not in the pen's records. So I hope that these 10 days uh, scared him straight and he uh, went on to live a life free of crime, but he never ended up at the pen. And then on the following day, Hineby was sentenced and the judge there said, is it, it is hereby considered and adjudged that the said defendant Hineby be imprisoned and kept at hard labor in the territorial prison of the prison of Idaho for the term of three years. Then she became inmate number 169, the first woman inmate. So before we get to the Woods trial, our final murder, there were a couple things here and there that, that kind of stuck out to me, different civil suits. And, and one that stuck out to me was there was a personal injury suit against the Utah and Northern Railroad Company. So I don't know if he got hurt on the railroad or, or what, but he was ordered to pay $16,702. And so I know you guys have played this game many times on episodes, but how much money do you think that is in uh, today's value? It was so different back then. I would guess um, $10,000. It's a lot of money. It was $450,000 in today's wow. money. Oh, geez. So real, real money. <sighs> so that was kind of cool to see. So the last murder of uh, this session, this term of the court was Alexander Woods. And so this was a case of two heavyweights going against each other. You know, we just had the Super Bowl, Mahomes against Brady. This is the same thing of the legal world of territorial Idaho. Uh, We had John Morgan and John Hawley. So the state asked John Hawley to serve as the prosecutor. And then Smith brought uh, Morgan in to help him out. And so two very competent and knowledgeable attorneys. And so Alexander Woods... He was half black. He was born a slave in Missouri in 1858. And as soon as the Civil War began, he and his family fled to Kansas, where he was a witness to the Lawrence Massacre, where Confederates killed 150 citizens. And so after the war, he moved to Indiana and then to Illinois. And in Illinois, he married Sarah, who became his wife. And he was 
almost immediately concerned about her faithfulness and and very suspicious. And they had a few more moves, Kansas, Texas, and Utah, before they ended up in Pocatello in 1874, where he set up a successful barbershop. And their relationship wasn't the best. He appeared to be very controlling. Things like he demanded dinner served at specific times. He wanted her home whenever she was. Uh, At one point, she got a job, but he forced her to quit um, because she flirted with customers you know, other things, if she wasn't home, he'd go looking for her. So, you know, as a prosecutor, to me, I read this today, and that's kind of the power and control dynamics, uh, a domestic uh, violence situation. And so in December 1886, she went to visit family in Payette, but kept on going and ended up in Portland. And at this time, he told a friend that if she didn't come back, he would kill her. And if he can't have her, no man can. And ultimately, he got her to come home but things weren't great. In May of 1887, Woods became convinced that she was cheating on him with a cowboy, a Carmen Acevedo. And she possibly or probably was, maybe not, but regardless, she certainly didn't deserve to die. And how he treated her, you can see why maybe she'd she'd want to find love somewhere else. But on May 5th, he went to the drugstore and he tried to buy some strychnine. And the druggist later testified that he was excited in a hurry and because of how he was acting, He wasn't sold any. So after that, he went and borrowed a gun from a friend. And he also, his friends also said he was drinking throughout the day. And at some point, someone saw him confront Sarah in the afternoon. And that night she went to a friend's house who later at trial described how she was nervous and kept looking out the window. And she left her friends home that night. And that was the last person that saw her alive. She was killed about 400 yards away by the river. And that same night, uh, before people found her body or knew what happened, Woods collected all his tools, money, and other property and just left town. And so she was missing until the body was found on May 10th, and she had a fractured skull, later shown to be fractured by a gunshot. And so by this time, Woods had made it down to Corrine, Utah. And the sheriff went to pick him up, and on the way back, got a message that there was a posse of 200 men in Pocatello ready to lynch him. And so you notice nobody was there to, to lynch Frank Williams. You know, I think you can figure out why there were people there to, to lynch him is due to his race. And oftentimes we think of lynchings as a Southern problem, but there were a lot of lynchings in the West, including Idaho. And so it's important that we talk about those and, and learn about them and, and make sure that stuff like that never, ever happens again. But the sheriff got word. And so he changed up the train and was able to to get out of there and get him to the jail safely. So trial started on May 26th and went until the 28th. So another three-day trial. The prosecution called 27 witnesses and the defense called seven. So I don't know how they got that done in three days. But during the trial, the prosecution put into evidence a lot of the violent statements that he had made about Sarah and how he was acting that day. The defense tried to shift the blame to the cowboy, um, Carmen Acevedo, and he was caught lying on the stand about their relationship. And they got him to admit that he had the same caliber gun uh, as which had caused her death. Wood also testified, and he said he saw the cowboy going to the river with his wife and that he was so embarrassed and ashamed. That's why he left town, Uh, not because he did anything, but the jury didn't buy it. And they came back with a verdict. We, the jury, duly impaneled and sworn in the above entitled cause, find the defendant guilty of murder in the first degree. Near the end of the term, Judge Hayes sentenced both Frank Williams and Alex Wood. So on May 31st, the judge ordered, 
I'll read the whole one for Frank Williams. He said, now, therefore, the said defendant, having been convicted of the crime of murder in the first degree, it is hereby considered and adjudged that the said defendant, Frank Williams, be taken from the courtroom to the county jail of Bingham County, and from thence on the 22nd day of July, 1887, to the place of execution, that he, the said Frank Williams, there between the hours of 12 o'clock a.m. and 4 o'clock p.m. of said day, be hung by the neck until he is dead. And then a few days later, he gave a, a similar order for Alex Wood that on that same day that he be hung by the neck until he is dead. And so both men eventually would hang. You know, you guys at the old pen didn't get him either. Uh, both appealed and lost. And they did a lot together. They also escaped jail together. On June 22nd, they escaped. Woods was immediately captured, but Williams was on the run for a few days. Wood was hanged on August 17th, 1888. Uh, and he said that he lied at trial, that he really did do it. He murdered her. He lied because his attorneys told him to. And his last words were, I forgive everybody. I hope to meet them in heaven. Uh, Williams tried to escape, not tried. He escaped a second time as well. On July 8th, 1888, he took a knife at the dinner table and was able to subdue two guards. He escaped, but was recaptured 10 hours later. And he hung on July 21st, 1888. And the night before he spoke to a reporter and he stuck to his story and said that it was an accident. You know, you guys shouldn't hang me. And so that's kind of what happened at this term of court. And, and I think there's a lot to learn from it, to look at it. First and foremost, Idaho is not some backwoods, you know, hick court. They were very professional and things were run very well and fairly for its time. And I think they were ahead of the curve in many ways. While the Sixth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution says that accused shall have the right to counsel, it wasn't until 1963 in Gideon versus Wainwright where this was really worked out and, you know, people were guaranteed a public defender. And so the appointing and paying for representation of these criminal defendants, I think, was really forward thinking and, and really interesting. Also looking at the other crimes, you know, some were acquitted, some were convicted, some got 10 days in jail, others got the old pen, some got executed. So, you know, they, they look at every case individually. It's not this just, uh, you know, old West hang them high kind of thing. And then I also liked seeing the, the happy thing, seeing four men become citizens and seeing a child reunited with family is great. But the thing that I love the most is how in doing history and looking at old documents, we can dig out the forgotten, you know, we can face that lynchings happened here and, and deal with that. But also we can find Sometimes it's, it's terrible it's this way, but sometimes it takes some digging, but find women in, in our history. And though they're erased or ignored, learning that Mary Randall was the head interpreter at Fort Hall uh, to me was just fantastic. And so I think we need to learn more about her and other women in history. Well, that's what I have. I hope, I hope that's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. You took a month of court and uncovered so many interesting things. Really well done. Thank you, John. Thank you. Yeah. And, and keep in mind, this was, it was one session. There were three districts and they'd have court all the time. And so this is just one little tiny snapshot of, of territorial Idaho. I, while you were reading these, how have things changed? The, the thing that actually really struck me is how much is the same. Um, some of the phrasing the judges use is the exact same uh, when sentencing. You know, the thing that, that really hit me was how quickly they were able to get things done back then for good or bad. Uh, I don't know if you call it efficiency or, or maybe they went too quick. I don't know. But uh, just the speed at which they got things done was, was very different from today. Yeah. 
Nice. Thank you for letting me come on again. I, I love oh, it. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. We love having you on. You're the gold standard for podcasts. I love it. Oh, that's so very nice. Thank you so much. I mean, I don't, I don't know if I would see it that way, but it's so nice to hear that other people would think so. I, yeah. Again, I just, I'm a nerd just sitting in my closet yelling about these ladies and how great I think they are. So, so there weren't too many details then about Hennebe's trial, just that you know, she was sort of, were there details on like what the actual crime was or witnesses or anything like that? It did list the witnesses. That's why I know okay. that there was a, a Native American who testified and how he had Mary Randall as mm-hmm. uh, his or her interpreter. When you go to the archives, right, the, the docket books you can always find. Sometimes you can find transcripts of mm-hmm. full trials. I don't think Hennebees is there. Usually those are if it's appealed. And she seemed to get a pretty good deal. Well, not a good deal. She, she ended up better for her than it could have. And so I don't think her trial transcript is available. I, I wish it was. It'd be fascinating to, to find out more about her and about what she did. But that's kind of thing, right? Is both yeah. her being a Native American and her being a woman, it probably didn't get uh, the attention that other people would. Um, that's kind of the problem. That's why we really have to dig in and, and tease these things out. Yeah. I mean, also, I mean, that's part of, of researching women, especially in these early days. I, I wonder if Mary Randall was a Native American herself, if that's part of the reason she knew the language or, you know, was at least raised near or on the reservation, just because I know that a lot of Native Americans started to take on anglicized names, especially as we start to see things like uh, the Indian schools, and that would have been kind of around the same time that we're seeing a lot of, of trying to integrate Native Americans into white society. So that'd be interesting to know. I agree. Maybe one of the listeners knows. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be awesome. We do, every once in a while, we get someone like you who's able to, to dig up stuff or someone who just sort of happens to know it and has the time to research it. And so that would be awesome if anyone could find that. Whenever you're ready to talk about your, your book about the test, oh, too, we'll, we'll get you back on. That sounds... <laughs> All right, I better get writing. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much, John. And we appreciate having you back on and we'll definitely get you in the future. Sounds good. Anytime. We'll do your own time. Do your own number. number. Yeah. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Not only do we get to hear your feedback about the show, but it helps others find us as well. If you're interested in finding out more about the podcast and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, follow our Facebook group at Behind Gray Walls Podcast. And new this season, we have a podcast Instagram as well. You can find us on Instagram at Behind Gray Walls Pop.